0: Welcome to the Child Welfare Leaders Podcast. We are challenging the status quo and inspiring you to lead change right where you are. I am your host, Cherish Fields, master level social worker and child welfare leader. Today, I have the opportunity to speak to a couple of areas of need in child welfare that I'm an advocate for. My guest that is joined with me in this conversation is meeting the need in those areas and she's going to share how she is doing that. Her name is Leslie Suggs, CEO of the Home for Little Wanderers located in Boston, Massachusetts. Leslie welcome and thank you so much for joining me in this conversation let's start off by you sharing a little bit about yourself
1: well good to be here um cherish I am as you said on the presidency of the home little wanders which is um the oldest child welfare organization in the country we go back bef- um over well over 200 years um I am a social worker I have a an undergrad and a master's degree in social work and um, have been in the field for gosh, too long and not too long, 35, over 35 years. Um, and, um, and just really honored to be here today. I'm excited to
0: have you. And I know my listeners are going to receive many benefits just hearing what you guys are doing at the home and what you're doing as a leader. One of the things that I am a big advocate for is social workers as CEOs in the area of nonprofit social services. When we look at systems that serve people, we don't often see the CEO having a social work degree. There are conversations around the fact that policies are being made and those that serve vulnerable populations are not at the table And deci- when deci- decisions are being made and are not leading in those organizations that serve populations that social workers are trained to serve. Now, we will see middle management leadership have social work degrees, but we don't. Well, I have not seen many at the CEO level that is a social worker. I've always thought that it would be advantageous to have a social worker as a CEO because, as a social worker myself, I feel we offer this unique perspective and, and set of skills that truly translate in leadership. So, I find it awesome when I come across someone that is a CEO and has a social work degree. Can you tell us a little about uh, just you know just a little bit about if you feel like having a social work degree makes a difference in leading a social service organization? and have you felt like your skill set has prepared you for a position as a CEO and has your team felt the uniqueness of your leadership as a social worker is there a difference
1: yeah happy to i mean i certainly would like to think that my team values the fact that i uh, bring that that lens to the work you know i will say that I've been at the Home Full of Wanders for almost 11 years now, and I, I, I've I been the CEO for almost four. So I was somebody who was appointed internally. And the board felt strongly that it was important to have a social worker lead this work. Given the complexities of where we are today, the needs of kids and families today, that our organization would be well served by having a social worker, somebody who had that technical expertise um, you know, driving our organization. And, and I had the, you know, unique ability, you know, I, I was uniquely positioned to have sort of proven myself, um, in terms of my ability to run the business of running our organization. And it is a complex business, um, certainly with a really incredibly powerful, um, mission. So, you know, I, I, from growing up in the field, and I've grown up professionally in Massachusetts, I, I was born and raised in Texas, but when I got to Massachusetts, I, I have to say that I landed in, um, you know, a, a, a landscape that had um, folks who did have that technical expertise leading organizations. And, I would say probably maybe 10 years into my career, there was this, you you could see the tie kind of changing that, that as nonprofits grew in complexity, um, the complexity of their funding streams, the complexity of the regulatory environments, the fact that our rates never support the work that we're doing. And many organizations are then out there fundraising, that there was this notion that if you had somebody, let's just say with an MBA um, and had that, that set, that somehow organizations would be well served by having that business lens and so we saw that shift and you know, I'd like to say that, you know, in Massachusetts, it's, it sort of, you know, they didn't necessarily pan out that way that, you know, it's one thing to know how to run a business. It's another thing to have the technical expertise to understand the work itself and how you build a culture in an organization, how you advocate for the public policy that's required, that allows you to do your work, that those are, those are things that require that you have expertise. And so we, you know, you saw kind of that people kind of backing away from that perspective. Um, and I often wonder, I'll be very, very honest, whether I needed to go back and get an MBA as I began to um, sort of take on increasing levels of responsibility and thought that perhaps running an organization was a part of that professional path and um, really landed from the uh, in a place where um, I, I felt like I didn't have to do that. And not that it wouldn't have been valuable to me, of course, but that I was able to get enough sort of on the ground learning um, in each, um, you know, as, as I grew in uh, levels of responsibility that, um, that, You know, I I had that business lens. I had the business acumen to be able to oversee an organization. And what really matters is that I understood the work. Um, You know, I'll just add, because I I teach um, sometimes at at two different universities and and I teach policy. And what I often say about this notion of social workers running organizations is that we've all met in our careers folks who really are good um, clinicians. They understand uh, they're good social workers. They understand the work and perhaps they don't, uh, uh, the the business side doesn't come so easily. And then you have folks who really understand the business, but they don't understand the work itself. Having both, I think is important. Um, and I, and I've, I feel really fortunate that I've had positions that have allowed me to, to have both of those, um, skill sets.
0: See, I love that. The fact you're not negating that there is a business side to it. Right. But you're also valuing that it's very important that you as a leader know the work. I think that just brings like this connection um, that's so unique to an organization that fosters uh a better culture within you know the work environment. Let me ask you this: Was being
1: a CEO the goal? No. You know, I, I you know I, I got into this work because I was passionate about working with kids and families. I wanted to make a difference in the world and um, you know, bright-eyed around that, you know, I got my undergrad in, in social work. You know, I have, I have a measure of credibility with my with my staff, with my organization because I've I've done the work. So I started as a residential counselor in a you know a group home. Um, then I worked in, as an outreach person working with uh, kids that were involved in the juvenile justice system, and then I started to run programs. And then I you know I supervised people, I ran programs, I had a, did some outpatient work for a period of time, went back and got my master's degree, and. With each, you know, as I as I, again, grew in with uh, in levels of um, just sort of oversight, it became so clear to me that in addition to the practice that I was doing, the direct work with clients and families, that in order to run a high quality program, in order to be able to deliver the kinds of services that we Um, wanted to provide. We needed to have a workforce that was compensated well. We needed a a policy environment that allowed us to do the things that we knew kids and families needed. And so that pulled me more into the, the public policy piece and the advocacy piece, and then what it meant to run an efficient program. And so those business pieces sort of came. And as I just continued to grow and develop. And wanted to be able to not only create an impact for the clients and families that we serve, but um, lead and create environments that allowed people to thrive, um, allowed um, you know, staff to grow in their skill set. I just sort of naturally fell into that place. And, um, and I've I've always, you know, in truth, I'm, a, I'm a, the oldest of three. Um, I have two sisters. I've I've always gravitated towards uh, positions of leadership. Um, I, I, when I was in high school, I was working at an amusement park, Six Flags Over Texas. And I, of course, became a ride foreman and I was doing the schedule and all of that. That's just sort of been as part of who I am. Okay. So, you know, I never really set out to be a CEO, but I, I don't think it would be a surprise to fo- for folks to hear. Yeah, of course, you know, I, I that's something that I, um, uh, you know, that became a desire as the you know the longer that I was I was, you know, in the field. Um and you know, I just will say that the the doing the work though, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, it gives me a knowledge set. Like I, you know, I, I have that credibility, you know, to be able to say like this is what it is to be to you know do home studies for foster parents this is what it is to provide cl- you know do clinical work. this is what it is to go into a home and do family work um having that perspective is invaluable to me in running a large um you know complex child welfare behavioral health organization you know there are there have been surprises in in running an organization and i think sometimes um, there's decisions it's you know we talked to, i spoke about the business of running an organization there are decisions that, um, or policies, or, or, or ways in which we need to operate that may not feel um, you know, that very mission of, I know I've done the work, I know what needs to happen. And you're, you're a practitioner and you say, if I could only have this, or if I could only operate in this way, I know this would be successful for families. And then working inside an organization that's saying, yeah, and we can't quite do that right now. Um, or, you know, and thinking, well, wait a minute, you get it as a CEO. Like you've done this. Like, why aren't you why why are you making this decision um and that you know you you come to understand that that it's just the complex the complexities and tying together all the different elements of policy and advocacy um Um, workforce, you know, training, compensation, there's all these pieces of running an organization and what it means to be a part of an organization that um, have to all come together and that you can't do everything you want to do right now, that there's a strategy, that there's goals that you set for the organization, and there's things that you work towards And having that, you know, having that be visible to the organization, I think, has been um, one of the biggest pieces of learning that you know that I've experienced. Um, The having a strategic plan for the organization that where all levels of the organization wait, you know, gets the opportunity to weigh in on that, gets to participate in, because it's invaluable to have all those perspectives, and then understands, okay, this is what we're working towards, um, so that they understand why we make decisions that we make when we make them, why I make certain decisions. Um, and, and having that, that visibility to the organization and and being comfortable with that kind of, um, decision making has been one of the piece the biggest pieces of learning, um, as a, as a CEO. Yeah, that's, that's easy. And it sounds like you have adopted a when you say decision-making,
0: it sounds like transparency. Like you're pretty yeah. transparent so that people can kind of understand the decisions that you make versus question, which fosters trust, right? So oh, completely. Completely. who you're leading is like, you know, I trust her because there's no backdoor deals or, you know, something else that's going on. Because I do think that there is these subtle messages in people's head that they assume that CEOs sometimes that lead the nonprofits are in it for the money. Right. And it's like, no, you know, it's not, it's not the money. It's, it's, It's you know, it's, it's about really serving. And I think that social service agencies that do focus on many needs of vulnerable, you know, populations, whether it's youth, families, um, those that are, you know, disabled, anything like that, like, it's about, it's truly about serving them and helping them and advocating for them in the best way. But it is complex because you have- so many different decisions that have to be made, right? And you have to think about so many different things, you know, that is all kind of mixed in together, right? Um, I know child welfare in totality, right? You deal with not just one system, you deal with multiple systems, education system, the mental health system, sometimes the juvenile justice system, they all kind of intersect. And then you have the family system, right? Now that's not necessarily an actual system that functions externally, but that is system you still work with daily, right? Someone's family system. That's right. So there's, that's a lot of decisions. <laughs>
1: that's a lot of weight, right? Um, right? Well, you asked me the question. I don't think I really answered it directly. You know, what does my day look like? And in the spirit of, um, you know, folks understanding the strategic vision of an organization and, and how we're trying to, um, you know, achieve our mission, Um, and, and and get the desire, you know, create that impact. It's, it's really, you know, I, I spend, I would say, you know, there's, there's the, the running of the inside of the organization. So the, the, the running of the day to day. Um, And then there's the, there's these sort of three legs of the stool. And then there's the um, public policy advocacy and, um, you know, both around policies that impact kids and families, but also how we're funded. So it's it's that work with external stakeholders. Our trade associations, we're involved. I'm on the board of uh, three trade associations that we uh, uh, that advocate on our behalf and and really working within those trade associations to advocate for adequate rates to make sure that salary benchmarks are are set in a way that allows us to pay get try to try to do our best to get to some measure of competitive compensation um, all that 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 kind of work both in our state and at the national level um, and then it's fundraising um, the, you know our, as I mentioned before our rates don't begin to cover our actual cost and so my you know, job of going out and um, not only raising money, but but giving visibility to the clients and families that we serve so that people know who they are and and why our work matters. Um, reaching out to the um, community stakeholders, to the business community to say, hey, you know, the home wanderers to wonders, we serve you know, over 15,000 kids across new England. And this is why, this is what happens to kids. This is why you need to understand it and, and, um, and support our work. Um, those, so those three things, and uh, you know, those are the things that, that, that I'm charged with doing to ensure that I create, that we create, that my team creates an environment so that we that, that where we can be successful and then give visibility to all of that, because it's not just me. There's you know, everybody in the organization has a role in that. Um, and some, you know, more or less, you know, so if, it, it, you know, I'm always asking people, you know, engage in this, this public policy advocacy with me. Um, we have a committee that does that is engaged there, you know, help provide testimony up at the uh, the state house or up on the Hill. Um, this is why it matters in your work. Um, or, you know, this is why good quality care matters. So let's think about these kinds of trainings and how to bring evidence-based uh, treatments into our work. And this is what it means to provide good care or help us tell the story so that we can get folks to help support our mission by either volunteering or, um, giving money to support that work. That's those giving visibility and making those really actionable hands-on things in the organization, um, is, is really how I spend my time.
0: Okay, That's good. That's helpful uh, to hear in kind of understanding where the focus is and, and what you're kind of like really called to do. But I loved also how you, you stated that everybody has, you know, it's a part of this, right? Um, Right. Everybody has a role to play. It's not just the CEO, right? So um, I think that that was, that's huge. I, I like that. You know, so you talked a little bit about the home um, when you were saying, you know, kind of bringing the awareness up. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a brief background on the home's history and kind of how has it evolved over the years in terms of what you guys do and what you offer um, and then where you're located as well. Because I know that um, when I when when your team reached out to me, I was like, oh, I've never heard of the home. And then I found out and I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. And then I was able to talk to you as well. But I learned so much. And then looking at the, the website, learning a whole lot. So from the CEO herself, you know, tell us a little bit about
1: the home. Yeah. So um, I think I mentioned we're the oldest child welfare organization in the country. Um, we started, you know, way back. We were located in Boston. Our corporate office is in Boston. We have we're, we've we've been very Massachusetts um, centric is um, so really serving the greater Boston area. And then recently through a merger um, have expanded into New Hampshire and New York city. Um, our back in, you know, in our very early years, really we were an orphanage um, that served um, children in Boston and, and have roots that go well back um, all the way back to Abigail Adams, for example, um, our adoption work has been going on for decades. Um, and um, really proud of that history. I think, you know, as the child welfare community has grown in its understanding of how to serve kids and families, our organization has grown with it. If, if, if not, you know, been an, a leader and innovator in changing how we work. So, the home little wanders of today is um still you know we still have residential programs in group homes where kids come to live with us who need to come into the to, you know the care of the state of our state um, child protective system we provide that stability support and treatment and and work to um, ensure that kids can you know leave with leave and go live in families we do rerun uh, foster care and adoption um, and we also have a, a very large um, a segment of our programming that works out in the community. Our behavioral health services were the largest provider of school-based mental health services in Boston, for example. We have a center for early childhood that's working with little ones um, in preschools to ensure that they are thriving in preschool and not getting expelled from preschool. We have home-based services. We have um, community centers that really work out in the community with families that haven't been identified by um, our state child protective system um, are or are not involved in any system, but just need some help and support. So this, this understanding that, um children who grow up in child welfare, the outcomes for those kids are just not good. There's always outliers. There's the kids that do amazing things, young people, but that kids really should grow up, need to grow up, should grow up in safe and loving families. And that bringing that value into our work um, has been really, you know, uh, so much of our focus over the last 15 years and certainly, in the time that I've been at the home so that, you know, for the, probably, you know, we saw the shift maybe about 10 years ago that, that more of our programming and more of the services that we provide are really out in the community where prior to that, um, most of our work was, um, it, you know, providing, uh, care to kids in placement. Um, we, that value of creating, um, permanent um you know positive change for kids that that kids that kids deserve to grow up in a safe and loving family is really the cornerstone of our work. Um, and I'm just so proud that our organization has been able to make that shift, that there's no longer this the belief that we'll do a better job of raising kids than, um, than families do. And it, that, that's, that's a hard shift for people to make sometimes yeah. in that, you know, you see really horrible things that have happened to kids and you say, okay, wait a minute. And, and kids sometimes just say, I don't want to be a part of a family anymore. I've, I've been there, I've done that. I have tried it multiple times and I, I, I just, I just want to, you know, be on my own and, um, you know, go to a, a an independent living, um, program or, or be, in, or live on, you know, just live on my own. And this idea that like every, no one grows up alone, that everyone needs, um, connections and people that have your back and that love and care about you. And that, that has to be our focus, um, to minimize the time that kids are in care and help find those, um, forever families, um, and connections out in the community. Uh, for, for kids. So that's really how our organization has shifted and, and changed over time. Uh, we want to keep kids out of, of child welfare if we can and really attend to their, you know, overall social and emotional well-being um, and, and help support families, um, you, you know, be the, 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 the best parents they can be. Um, and and that's, that's really how we've seen our, our, our work change.
0: And you know what? That's important, too, because I think that there's this, you know, there's no a lot of times I'm saying these things because I feel like these are the themes that you see in child welfare often. And I would say that from many people's perspective, sometimes there's this thought that social service agencies, they try to survive by kind of just like this existing and trying to, you know, they'll change their programs to to survive the times, right? But it sounds like what the home has done is saying, no, we're not changing to survive. We're changing because we are now realizing and learning so much more about how to really meet the need of children. So as research, you know, has come out and education, you know, has been provided out to the public, you guys have probably like, you know, um, read those things, reviewed all of that and kind of learning best practice and evidence-based and saying, you know what, we could really serve kids better by steering away from the orphanages and kind of doing it this way, right? Well, they, they don't have to go to the orphanages. They can go and get service. Their family can get serviced right through us, or we can be a safe place while we help their, their parents, right? So that's what I'm gathering for what you're saying is there's this been this evolution because of the information that has been made available to help you serve in a better way.
1: Oh, completely. I mean, when you listen, if you're really listening to the stories of, um, young people who have grown up in the system and what, is important to them. You know, what, you know, when you, when you, you know, you say, you know, what did you, what did you get from, you know, what did you learn from your parents? What did you get from your parents? You typically don't say they got me a driver's license and a checking account and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You say, they taught me about working hard. They taught me about unconditional love. They taught me um, about being, you know, a good brother, a good sister. And, um and, and what happens for kids who grow up without feeling that hope of, you know, being a part of like not knowing what what's going to happen to them and feeling alone. And you listen to that enough and you say, we have to do better. Like we just have to do better. Um, when you look at the outcomes that say that, that kids who are homeless, but who grow up in a family have far better educational outcomes than foster care kids that, you know, you have to listen to that. You have to, you have responsibility to, to change how we work. Um, we had, you know, it, it, in you know, really listening and paying attention to the literature that was coming out about the long-term impacts of growing up in foster care. A lot of the stuff that came out of um, you know the Casey Foundation. Um, you know, we took that in and said, okay, you know, we, there's a lot that we can't control. We can't control the court system. We can't always control how our state partners move, but we can control our own practice. You know, we can understand that our job is not just to provide safety and stability. um, But our job is also to think about the long-term permanency plan for kids. And in fact, if we're thinking about permanency, right from the beginning, that that is trauma treatment, that's trauma informed care, you know, a, a child comes into care, that's traumatic enough. They don't know what's going to happen to them. You know, you have a seven year old, eight year old, a 12 year old, a 15 year old, like, where am I going to live? And who's going to take care of me? Um, we did a, a study um, just to just to examine the data of our uh, kids that were in our care that, that were the most acute, I always say, the kids that were rocking and rolling, the kids that were really having struggling and having a hard time, and The the high correlation between those kids and the kids that did not have a clear permanency plan were just, you know, you know, you, you 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 couldn't ignore it because. Um, the, of the, yeah, it's just so clear. So we said, we've got to change, we've got to change the way we work. Like the permanency can't be the end game. It has to be a part of the conversation right from the beginning and really listen to what kids need. So, you know, we, we really shifted our, our practice and our way of of being. And, you know, I should say too um, that prior to us really making a shift in how we did our permanency work, we had been a, a real leader in Um, In Massachusetts of working with youth who have had aged out of care, we developed an array of programming for young people who um, were going to age out of care without family or who had already aged out of care. We've got housing programs, life coaches, community based programs, really understanding that you know, kids didn't choose to come into childhood. They shouldn't be responsible for the failure of child welfare to, to not find family for them. And that we needed to stay involved with them until they successfully launched into adulthood. And it was in, you know, the more we got into that work and listening to the stories of young people, you know, sitting with a 19 year old, I'll never forget it. Sitting with a 19 year old who had just completed her own adoption video. She still wanted to be adopted. And if you really spoke with her, I'm not sure she actually wanted to live with a family. She was in college and living in a dorm, but she she wanted a mom. She said, I want a mom. I don't have a mom. And like at 19, you know, she, so when let's, you listen, let's be honest, you at your age, you still want your
0: mom, right? Of course. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, that's, absolutely. I think that sometimes I love that you said that because I think sometimes when you're in this work, you can kind of, you get so, I guess, so consumed with, the things to do and getting those things done and the demands that are coming your way. You feel like everything is coming towards you and you don't sometimes have the time to really sit back and reflect and see and hear when the kids say things like this to help them to understand that that's completely normal, that you as an individual, as a person, right? So you sitting there with that 19 year old, you could say, hey, I'm an adult and I still need my mama. I still want my mom. I'm happy to, you know, if you are able to go and see her or talk to her or, you know, bond with her, you're able to do that. Whereas kids in foster care, because of whatever reason, um, normally safety or, you know, um, neglect has happened that has, you know, caused the, the break of the family then those kids don't have that mom anymore. You know, that relationship has been broken completely, or maybe they didn't have much of a relationship with their mom. Um, Cause that can happen too. Right. And so they mm-hmm. seek that, that type of connection. So I always try to, I always give the example that, you know, kids, a lot of times when they're acting out or they're trying to do certain, they're seeking connection. They're looking, where can I plug into basically, who will accept me? So, they they morph into whatever behaviors look like might be accepted or someone that can, you know, see them and say, hey, let's talk. Let me hear what has, you know, what's on your mind, you know, and yeah. what do you, what, what, ha, what, what's bothering you or what has happened to you, right? Um, versus what's wrong with you. You know, we've heard a lot, of, a lot more of that, of being able to ask the right questions with kids to help them so they can feel connected and letting them know that it's perfectly normal. You know, if she's 19 and she wanted to be adopted still, like you said, she may have not wanted to live with them, but being able to have somebody to call on, even when you, especially when you're in college, you know, like how do you cook this? How do you... you you know, absolutely. like, <laughs> or, hey, I got this bill. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or hey, yeah. I might need some help, you know, because the okay. ABCD or the boyfriend or the girlfriend problem, right? So, friend problems, all these things that happen, you know, in college. Yeah, people still, you know, kids still need people that
1: can show up in those roles. They yeah. absolutely do. They absolutely do. And, you know, shifting that perspective in you know an organization like ours that has such a long history in traditional child welfare, um, the this notion that we existed to take kids into our care and protect them from the bad things that had happened or the the parents that couldn't take care of them. Um, shifting that perspective, not only for our organization, but from the stakeholders out there in the community who had supported our work and and saying, you know, I, I remember having the conversation with my board and I said, look, you know, as beautiful as our residential programs are and as highly skilled as the um, the staff that we have that work with those kids it's you know so important in, in taking good care of them it is no place for children to grow up you know this that's that that's not what we want and they're you know going oh okay and guess what foster care is not permanency just because a child is living with a really loving wonderful foster family and we're so grateful for them that's not a permanent outcome um, unless that foster family chooses to adopt them and and you know folks are going oh okay I just kind of thought once kids were stable, and safe. That was the outcome. Like that was the good outcome. And that's, that's not the good outcome. The outcome is, as I said, you know, helping kids grow up in a a safe and loving family, you know, when you're
0: placed in that foster family doesn't mean that it's stable, right? That's right. That's right. They can move at any point, which I believe is why many kids who are in foster homes, you know, deal with a lot of anxiety because you just never know when your time is up. Right. Yeah. So you just never know when you have to move again. And so that adoption usually seals the deal. Right. So it gives them a little bit more uh, feelings of safety that these are my people. You know, this is Absolutely. where I am. I am OK. Uh, I am well, safe. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, that's awesome. You know, you spoke on permanence, yeah, you know, the permanency initiatives that you guys have done. And I would love for you to kind of share a little bit of more about that in regard to how you guys have done that in partnering with stakeholders and people that you work with and and what did that look like? What kind of collaboration? was needed? What did that collaboration look like so that you could make, meet the needs of the clients that you served, of those children and those families?
1: Yeah. You know, that was a real journey. And I'll say that particularly for anybody who's listening, who's thinking about how you might bring this practice into your organization, or maybe you're already starting to do it that, you know, we first started at the Home Little Wanders. There was um, a sentiment that, Okay, Leslie, yeah, you know, we, we can change our practice, but how do we get our state partners to go along with us? And in Massachusetts, we're private providers that the, the state contracts with to provide the treatment services, um, you know, thinking, but we can, we can do all this advocacy and we can position, but if this, our state partner is so risk averse that they won't allow that to happen, or they don't see, they're not aligned, we're not aligned in our thinking, how are we going to get that done? You know, it's that shifting of, you know, we're equally responsible for the permanency work uh, along with our state partner. So I had to do that work inside. And, and we got some really good consultation and help with just shifting our thinking, but also um, how to actually do kind of all the pieces of permanency work that we knew were important, you know, family search, um, preparing kids for permanency, the clinical stuff, you know, finding natural supports and folks that kids cared about. But we also knew that we would have to partner with our state stakeholders. And so we did that in a variety of ways. We, um, you know, at, at a high level, I started having the conversation with with you know, leadership with inside the Department of Children and Families in Massachusetts um, and sharing our philo- philosophical perspective. And there's no one that's going to disagree that permanency is a good thing. So you get that sort of philosophical buy in. And then it's the relationship building on the the, the ground with um, you know our our you know, social workers and clinicians that work inside the home, alongside the the, the state agency social worker, and talking about shared risk. Um, and shared risk is a is a huge that's a huge piece of it because if any person feels like they hold the risk alone you're, you're risk averse, you know, you're, you're less likely to, um, stretch the conversation or, um, you know, st- really look at a, a path for a child that, that has that risk. So if, if departmental families feels like, you know, we're the bottom line, we're the one that's going to be on the front page of the paper, if something goes badly or, um, or if we feel like, you know, I don't know, we, you know, we start to create a path for a child and it goes sideways that we're going to hold all that risk. So a lot of conversation about shared risk, um, and relationship building. And then I also, you know, we started uh, as we were on our journey around just growing our expertise and going to outside conferences. Um, I invited our state partners to come with us. I remember going to a, a a conference in Chicago. Um, it was the title of the conference is called wicked problems. And there was a focus on, um, you know, the challenges of, of creating a permanency anyway. And I invited our state partner in the Boston regional office and said, you want to come to this with me? Um, I think we could, there's a lot we could learn together. And by the end she said, yes, I luckily, luckily. And, um, by the time we got to the end of our three day conference, she said, we got to do something together. So we, started with a pilot of kids that were involved with the Home for Little Wanders and who were a part of a certain area office within DCF. And we engaged in this permanency practice that we've been doing with some external coaching and just did that work together for a year. And boy, you know, the outcomes permanent permanency outcomes were better for kids when we did that. Um and we built relationship and trust and just started creating opening the doors for those conversations. So um that's, you know, that that was really it you know, it's it's slow work. it It takes its intentional work. Um, but it's also just I'll say this. This is my guiding principle that I would say to my staff. when you when you stumble up against a barrier or somebody who's closing a door um, from our state partners, um, or maybe even from a kiddo, but but mostly from our state partners, you have to come from a place of appreciating and understanding that that person, is not trying to be a barrier that no one wakes up, you know, at the end of the day and says, how am I going to, you know, <laughs> how am I going to be a barrier to the, for the happiness of a child, that we're all doing the very best we can. And that it's really just about shared understanding and moving in measured ways. Um, and so don't assume incompetence. Don't assume that someone's just doesn't get it like work together and keep, stay in dialogue with each other. Um, you know, have conversations, collaborate, and um, you know, that that's how we'll get this work done. And that, that that's really been, that's really been, um, you know, the way that we've moved through.
0: You know, and that you know what it sounds like? So I don't know, you could tell me if you agree with this analogy or not, but it sounds like co-parenting. It sounds. Oh, yeah. It sounds like That's a good one. I like that. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> you have come together with your stakeholders, and you guys have come to the table to say, "All right, we got to parent these kids together because we need to see this work in their best interest." Right? We got to get on the same page because we both want to see a positive outcome. Right? Therefore, for their well being and their interest. So, how do we do that and just start those conversations? But it it sounds like co parenting
1: it's such a good analogy. It, 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 it I just thought of immediately of this story of this kiddo that was in our care. I just happened to get pulled into the, um, one of the consultations and it was a kiddo. It was about 16 years old, 17 years old. And when you asked him, you know, where, where do you want to live? Like, who do you want to be? Who has your back? He says, my older sister, his older sister was, I want to say 26 or 27 at the time. And our state partner said, no, no way. Um, you know, five years ago when they were in communication with each other, he'd always run, he'd run, there was a risk there. And so we said, well, you know, that was a long time ago and she's older now and she's parenting her own child pretty successfully. And, you know, would it be okay if they just started to have some phone calls? Well, yeah, we can do that. Okay. That makes sense. And then, you know, that progressed. Well, it would be okay if she came here to visit. Well, yeah, that would be all right. And then it was, well, could we, do you think maybe we could just at least go have a visit and we'll go to the visit? yeah, we can do that. And then before you know it, long story short, understanding all the risks and concerns that they had had ages ago, we all got to, and it wasn't, know just completely smooth path there were some bumps along the way but finally got to a place where everyone felt comfortable and this kiddo was thriving and this this young man was able to go home and live with his sister successfully but if we hadn't pushed that or if we had just accepted no or under no one understood and appreciated the risk that we each held and the the real experience that someone had had with a bad outcome um if we didn't start from a place of understanding you know that kiddo might have never gone to live with his sister or worse or maybe, you know, left care and said, I'm going to live with my sister anyway. And they wouldn't have had the support they needed. And maybe it wouldn't have been successful because we weren't there to help with all the, you know, the bumps and navigations that, that happened. So that it's exactly what you said. It's co-parenting. We did it together.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I, I've been a part of some work where we have really had, and I, you know, I've said this, I've said this a lot too, where, you know, just even in my work in child welfare, there were other organizations that we worked with in the community and they would usually bring all, everybody together, private partners and the state partners together. And I'll be honest, I've worked in child welfare, um, and some in where I worked, I would say that there, there can oftentimes be adversarial relationships between state and private partners.
1: Oh, no question. And, you
0: know, which make it very difficult, which which is why I kind of came up with the co-parenting, because you have some people who struggle with co-parenting. Right. And then you have those that, you know, when you can finally work together and co-parent, you know, guess what? It benefits the family, those that you're serving. Right. It benefits the child. So, you know, one of the things I always have advocated for is having a space. Basically, what you did is like what your agency did. Was this something that you led?
1: There, our permanent initiative, it was. Yeah. I, you know, okay. I started that work before I was even the CEO. Um, okay. And it's been a lot. yeah. It's been years in the making.
0: So I have always advocated for creating a space where we can kind of learn to understand, right? Because I think that there is a lot of assumptions. You know, there is a lot of, we assume someone's incompetent or we assume, you know, this person doesn't get it. So I love that you say go in don't assume but seek to understand, right? Seek to understand yep. because this is work that you are serving other people and you can't it's hard to believe I would say I, it would be more so hard to believe that somebody comes into this work not having any intention of caring for kids and thinking about them and their well-being and wanting them to have the best possible outcome. Right. You you absolutely. it's hard to fathom someone coming into this work and intentionally wanting to give other people a bad day and wanting to see kids have poor outcomes. Right. It's it's absolutely. harder to <laughs> you yeah, know it's harder to picture that. Right. So I right. love I love that was just empowering in itself by you saying that. I think that's so important. I hope that people who are listening hear that. And I hope that even that inspires people to take the lead, even no matter where they are, to start those conversations on how we can improve relationships with um, our state partners you know, and other stakeholders so that we can seek to understand each other and co-parent in healthy ways so that the kids are getting better outcomes. Because based on what you're saying, the work that you guys have done at the home with the Permanency Initiative did show positive outcomes.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, in in, in every way. And you know, when you, we, and we do ongoing training and coaching because I don't, this work is, it, it's not necessarily intuitive. And, um, whenever you see a child who's really struggling, the first question we go to is, okay, what's the permanency plan? You know, is, was there just a disruption in a permanency plan? Where, where, what where, where, where is this kid? What's, what's the path for this, this kiddo? And when we look at, we track our, um our interventions and and the path to permanency it's just so it's just so clear that when you're paying attention and you're making progress around permanency for the kids that come into care um, that you um, have a much better outcome and the kids are just doing better you know they're they're just yeah. they're their overall you know how they're they're you know how they're doing in school making friends just just their overall sense of contentment that they're that they do better yeah. It's,
0: well, the anxiety goes down because if I don't know what right. to expect from the future, I, I am losing it because I have too many options in my that are you know flowing in my head. Right. So if if understanding that there is somewhere to leave after this, right, there's somewhere to go from this, then I have. I have somewhere that I'm going, right? So I'm more stable. It brings, it. I'm more calm, right? Because then it's like, okay, okay, I know there is a plan for me versus just kind of feeling completely disconnected, completely um, isolated, completely um, just no kind of in an abyss, right? There's nothing in the future you can even grab a hold to, right? That says this will end, you know, me being in foster care will end and I'll be able to go back home or I'll go to a home, to a family, right? That will love and support me that I'll have help, right? Because I think that kids, they're smart, man. And they, they know that they need help, right? They know that they don't have all the answers and can't figure it out, right? And they want that connection, right? That safety that yeah. you know um, an adult can provide. Uh, the right adults can provide. So I love that you guys have looked at it, looked at that and then created um, this collaboration approach uh, to meet to meet the need, right? Because that's what we're talking about. Um, so you guys have done well with meeting that need. Um, and when you said coaching, I just want to clarify. So if somebody is in, interested in this, are you paying like another agency to come in and coach? Are you guys, do you train your team to provide this cycle of coaching
1: that you, because you said your ongoing training, yeah. ongoing coaching, how does that look? So when, so when we first started this Permanence Initiative about seven years ago, um, we did partner with an outside organization to come in and um, one woman in particular, she's amazing and train us and provide ongoing outside coaching kind of a model of doing good permanency work is to have an outside person consult to the team because they can see things in a little bit different way sometimes when they're not a part of the the actual work so that's where we started but we were able to probably at three years in bring that in that um, coaching and training inside our organization. So now we have, um, not only permanency champions inside our organization that consult to clinical teams, but they sit inside. We also are training and coaching, um, uh, folks outside of our organization. We have a permanent connections contract where we will go work with a child or a, a young person, um, who is, um, either living in foster care, not our foster home, but or another group home. And we're working on the permanency goals. So it's it's and and we know that it really does require ongoing training and support. Everyone in our organization who is hired receives some measure of permanency training. Whether you're an accountant or you're working in um, you know you're one of the cooks in our in our residential programs, um, and then given your role in the organization, you go deeper into that permanency work of a really you know rolling up your sleeves and, and leaning into that. So we we do that now ext- you know, internally and then provide that training and coaching outside our organization.
0: Listen, you said something I'm, I love so much because I've worked for an organization that understood this immersive approach. And it sounds like you guys have adopted that too. It doesn't matter if you're the cook, the janitor, whoever, the accountant, the financial person, you are immersed into the approaches and the model of what we're doing, because you can support, you're a part of that, right? Oh, um, so that is, uh, that's amazing. I love that. That is amazing. And I think that that's the right approach. I think that more people, you know, could really find benefit in adopting that, that you don't, it, organizations to no longer run as in that's their role over there. They need to stay over there and they have no idea what's actually happening in the services, right? they should be a part of that as it's a whole team, right? It takes a village, you know? So everybody that's a part of, you know, your agency's village should really have the training and the knowledge and the education. So if anything ever happens, they're a part of that, you know, and they support it. And the more that knowledgeable there, know, guess what? They can
1: advocate, you know, Uh, make them better in their roles. Yeah. Everyone wants to be connected to the mission. That's why they come and work for us. And so, you know, or I I can't imagine, you you know, the number of of uh, relationships that kids have with the person who's cooking the meals or is fixing the window. Like they talk and to understand what your role is and that, um, helping that, you know, listen differently to a child's story that, that we're all a part of that team.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, it kind of gets into a little bit too like just, you know, this meeting the need. And I I don't, you know, as we wrap up, I there's one more topic I really want to hit because as I was like researching and as me and you were actually talking, and I, I found this unique event that you guys have. And you know, normally, you know, this is more of a status quo that you see, you don't really see what you guys have done happen. Constantly. So it's not a highlight reel in society. Right. So it's not talked about enough. So if it is happening, it's it's not brought into um, more attention. Right. So something. uh, So I think that what you guys have done with this this event that we're about to talk about, you've invested in a concern that child welfare has had for far too long and you created something that really met the cultural need, you know, Mm -hmm. for children of color in the system. Um, And I want to start by just kind of sharing with people who may not know, um, who might be listening, but statistics show that there is a disproportionate number of African-American children in the foster care system. And according to NCSL, as of this is 2018 data, Black children were 13.71% of the population, but yet 22.75% were children in the foster care system. They were black. Also, according to that 2018 data, American, Indian, and Alaskan Native children didn't even account for 1% of the population, yet they made up 2.4% of children in foster care. So that just kind of tells you there's this disproportionate number of children of color winding up in the foster care system. And those are the kids that we're serving. And I don't hear enough about ways that we are counteracting and serving the needs of those children from a cultural level, um, as well as just you know, needs-based level. And so the home sponsors an annual event that meets needs for young black males through the WOMAC conference. And I'm gonna have you kind of break that down for us. But I was really impressed with this. This really struck home for me being a woman of color and working with so many, you know, kids um, specifically. You know, I work with teenagers and when I, a lot of the teenagers I work with were Children of color, because they they're the ones that are likely to age out of the system. And there there has not been a number of events or things that are developed for them that address something that they can understand from on a cultural level. Um, It's usually just about placement. maybe just giving them life skills training and sending them on their way. Um, And this is, again, this has just been my experience. So when I came across what you guys were doing, I was like super inspired by this initiative. And I just want you to share more about this, where it came from, uh, what inspired you guys to do this, and um, a little bit about what the conference does and what success you've seen from it.
1: Oh, I am happy to. And, you know, we could do a whole other podcast on our work around um, um, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging and the work that intentional just awareness that we have around the disproportionate number of kids who come into care, um, kids of color. It, it's it's, you know, an area of focus on our work. And if you think about really ensuring that, you know, we, we don't want kids to come into care who don't need to come into care so that it, it's just been so present for us. Um, and we have a very robust sort of DEI plan that 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 really touches every area that you would expect and imagine. But I am proud to talk about our Young Men of Color Conference as a part of that work. Um, And we also have a a, a Women of Color Conference that that we've done. The Young Men of Color Conference, the the idea for that um, really started, it was when I was vice president of programs and our CEO at the time, um, John Wallace Benjamin, um, black woman raising two boys, and in the community and and you know had her experience of what it is to raise um young men and constantly being you know unpacking the the messages that they received and um protecting them and you know all of that that you know i um t- to have no intimate knowledge of right that this was her life experience and then you know we see the the, the kids that we were serving and the same thing you know we've got, large residential programs, group homes. And by far, um, there are more kids of color in those programs than, um, than white children. So there was a real attention and focus of how we can create experiences for young people that help them, um, um, see something other than, I'm a kid in the child welfare system. And so we um, have done this conference annually. We did not do it last year because of the pandemic, but where young people come for the day, we set it inside a, a um, college institution. We had it at Brandeis for a couple of years. And then we moved at um, my first year as CEO to Roxbury community college, right in the heart of Boston. And where young people would come and participate in like hear really inspirational speakers, Uh, would participate in smaller breakout groups, uh, all facilitated by men of color. So people with lived experience who said, this has been my world. This was my journey um, with facilitated prompts and questions like great discussions um, and then Again, inspirational sort of—you know, this is what you know. This was my life, and 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 men from all different backgrounds, like highly successful businessmen, um, to um, you know, every range, like from all these different kind of places to say, this is what it was my life experience was like as a man of color growing up in the community and re- in very real and raw ways um, and then providing like educational opportunities like the fact that we had it at Brandeis I felt like and at Roxbury Community College was a way to get kids exposed to college like get them on a college campus um, hear what it's like to you know one be on a college campus they got to meet with um, admissions people and financial advisors the, the last year that we did it we actually had um, a breakout session for, for parents, for caregivers. It was the first time we had done that where parents would come and we could say, look, you know, here's, here's a, and and hear their concerns and their thoughts and just have discussion, just shared, you know, just community really. Um, and, um, it was just so, just so impactful, um, for young people, you know, and we, we had little ones all the way up to, I say little ones probably starting around age nine, all the way up to, um, 18 year olds who are participating in, in age appropriate things throughout the day. But just, you know, so and, and then also to just say this is a conference about you and your experience um, it, it was, I think, incredibly impactful.
0: Uh, yes, I love that. I so love that. And you said you do one for um, young ladies as well.
1: Yeah, we have we have um, it's it was a women of color conference versus a young women of color conference. And the, our diversity committee, um, really kind of listening to the, to our, our, the folks who, who were kind of putting this together, wanted to start with our professional, um, women of color who, you know, to come together and talk about what it, it means to be a woman of color in the field, um, speak to the communities that they, Um, live and work in and the families that they raise um, and then move that to provide that opportunity for the young girls that we serve. Um, And, and, you know, a whole different kind of um experience so that was really exciting so we hope to we hope to be able to to continue that post-pandemic um we don't have any dates set up in the future this has been a, such a wonky time as, yeah. you know, for all of us right
0: well let me encourage you please do it even virtually i'm pretty sure that somehow i mean this just seems so amazing like yeah. and so so needed so i hope that you know people hear this and are inspired to do something unique to meet you know needs of young people of color and and professionals of color right because i think that Absolutely. is that's needed as well so i love i love the approach i love the event and that it was even thought of um, i i think it probably was so impactful to those that were attend in attendance. Um, so I, I love that. And I love this, that level of innovation to meet needs, you know, of all of those that you serve. So that mm-hmm. is so valuable and so needed that I know inspires other people because when we do excellence, um, excellence inspires others. And so that that was an excellent idea um, and just effort on you guys's part. So thank you so much uh, for doing that. Um, you know, as we get ready to close up here, you know, I want, I always take the time for my guests. I want to always ask, you know, you're in leadership. So I, I want to ask you, what are the leadership values that you subscribe to that have helped you lead?
1: Thank you for that question. Um, you know, as, as I reflect on what it is to be a leader, um, the the thing that drives me always has been just a passion for the work. and 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 I think, you often hear leaders talk about just, just the passion for what they do. Um, for me, just in terms of who I am as a person, I think being comfortable with that level of authenticity and, and sharing the passion, um, is, you know, been front and center for me, like really being comfortable. Okay. Like, let's like, let's, Let's talk. About, let's get real and talk about you know why we're here and what we're trying to accomplish. Because nothing is you hear about you know things being aspirational. Well, you know we can achieve really great things um, by 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 utilizing that passion, taking that passion and, and operationalizing it to really actionable things. You know, you mentioned the Young Men of Color Conference. Well, you know that you know we don't have to dream about that. We can do it. Um, and then I would say um, really valuing. Um, the power of listening to the expertise um, and lived experience that is out there um certainly in my organization but across the field um listening in a in a way you know asking good questions and um and listening to colleagues um and and just just knowing when not to speak and to, to really listen um and then you know i'm just a, such a firm believer in the you know, creating opportunities to develop people, like allowing people to grow and people grow in a variety of ways. There's professional development, there's personal growth and development, um, there's um, the way that we, you know, our educational attainment, but supporting an environment that allows people to show up and be their best selves um, and and is OK. You know, we're not we're all not our best selves every day, um, but, but creating those environments and, and then creating teams that have that diversity of perspective and opinion. Um, that again, allows for, that pushes us all to grow and develop as, as a part of that. So, um, you know, I think those are kind of the three guiding, guiding principles yeah. for me as a leader. And I those love them. Well, I love them. That's, that's and I,
0: I can tell you subscribe to them because even as you have shared, I hear all of them in play. I hear all of them in play. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, you know, and then lastly, any empowerment for worker, for any professionals that are in the child welfare system, because sometimes child welfare, it's hard work. Right. And oh we gosh, see yes. we are disappointed as well. You know, we have to deal with disappointment of certain decisions that are made or the system, you know, has failed in some way because we do know that it's broken. But what is your advice to the professionals um, as we try to advocate for change for better in the child welfare system, how can they challenge the status quo and lead change in whatever position that they are in? And and the professionals, when I'm saying I'm talking about, they can be lawyers, they can be the actual workers, they can be leaders in the organizations, they can be foster parents, but everybody who is in child welfare to me is a leader. So what could what advice could you give them to help them challenge the status quo?
1: Yeah. Um... I always, I think it's, I think it's two things, um, that I think are front and center that I, I, you know, that I, I, you know, I try to set this tone with you know, anybody I mentor and, and folks that folks certainly I lead nine organization is that we have a responsibility in our field to be informed and to, um, to, bring technical expertise to the work that we do. Um, yeah, I, I always say, you know, it's, it, it, it it's not okay to just wing it, you know, to just use just, you know, we all trust our guts and we all have kind of, you know, reasonable decisions that we make every day, but, but you wouldn't want to go to a, you know, a cancer doc to treat your breast cancer and, have that that cancer doctor to say, oh, I think maybe we should do that. I'm just gonna, you know, my gut tells me, you know, no. They come from a place of expertise, so we have a responsibility to be educated and informed, and to study and to be good practitioners. And in that, there's a comfort level that comes with. Okay, I think I can make a difference because I come from a place of knowledge, um, and so not to back away from that. Um, we all want to make sure that we. And then, the, you know, the, the second piece is to be a good listener so when you're a good listener and you listen to the lived experience of folks then you balance that technical expertise and um, and 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 having confidence around how to do this work with the humbleness of listening to people's um, reality to their lived experience, to the, the experts that they are about the life that they're living and what they need. And in those two things becomes a, a place of, I think real, where I can make a difference here because how can you not listen to people's stories and not feel like you're making an impact when you're able to feel like there's something that you contribute. I think those two things are incredibly important. And I guess I will add a third and you hear about this a lot, but it can't go, um, you can't say it enough is also taking care of yourself that, that, um, you you have to take care of yourself and, um, you know, exercise and drink plenty of water and have fun and, and create joy in your life so that you can come back and do this incredibly important work that is, it can be incredibly draining. Um, but, but Look for the joy in that. Look for the joy in the, the, the advocacy and the changes that you're able to bring to a family, a um, a system. Um, you know, the, the work is hard, but it doesn't mean that it's not doable. And, and every day there are clients and families that we are serving that feel the impact and, uh, of, of what we do and are so grateful. Take that gratitude in because you you can make a difference and do every day.
0: Yes. Yes. I I love that. That is so real because yes, it is hard, but the rewards are great. I like to say, because you can make generational impact, right? So instead of seeing generational foster children come into the system, we can stop that because experience matters, right? And how people experience us as those professionals working with them or just as people, humans working with them, that that example, you know, that we give them, that they experience by us really, really can make a difference in their life, right? It's it's that impact that that makes that change um, a lot of times. So yes, I love that. You know, you've shared a lot with us today. You've given us a lot of great information, great ways to meet the need of children in foster care and how you've led the home and what the home has done to serve the needs of children in foster care in Massachusetts. So there might be people that are listening that would like to follow you or even get involved with, or learn about the mission at the home. Could you tell them how to do
1: that? Yeah. um, We um, go to our website, www.thehome.org. And um, you'll see, you know, our programs and, and ways to follow us on social media um, and I'm always, you know, I love to, to have conversations with folks, you know, in, in our work. Um, and, and, you know, if you, anyone ever wanted to reach out to me, just ping me on LinkedIn and, um, I'm happy to, or, or through our email that you'll find on our website and I'm, ha- I'm happy to connect. It's always fun to learn about what's going on in other parts of other parts of the country. Yes how we can collaborate with each other. So I think it's completely right. We need more of that.
0: Put our heads together. When someone is doing someone, if someone is doing something great and it's showing that it's working, let's figure out a way to come together and share ideas, you know, because we all at the end of the day want to co-parent. Make (laughs) sure we benefit kids. (laughs) Write that down. Um, You know what, Leslie? Thank you so much for joining me. Just taking time out of your busy schedule, you know, to really to sit down and talk with me here at the child welfare Latest podcast it has truly been a pleasure oh um, thank you just hearing I, from you
1: oh I yeah I enjoyed every minute of it thank you so much for taking the time
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for the listeners out there that are listening. And something that Leslie spoke about was about taking care of yourself. And last season, I, the last episode that I had was about finding balance. So if you need some keys and just some helpful advice on how to find balance and working in the child welfare system, I think you'll find that episode pretty helpful um, as I kind of navigate you through finding balance and doing what you love, but also prioritizing yourself so that you can continue to do do so. Check that out. Um, But in the meantime, this is a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to all of you continue to follow share with your networks. Um, I will include all the information um, that Leslie shared today on how to follow her and learn more about the mission at the home in the show notes. So uh, make sure you check that out. Um, Until then, I'll see you guys next time.